This evening's reading is from Mark 11, um, verses 1 to 25, which can be found on page 1015 of the Church Bibles. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and it will be sent back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the Lord heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Thank you, Lottie. There's a bit of a mystery about the evening service at Bishop Haddington. And the mystery is, where do KOs sit? Last time I preached, they were on that side. And tonight, there they are on this side. Whether it's to avoid my gaze, I'm not sure. But um, always nice to see KO as I preach. Um, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, though it speaks of a time distant from us in so many ways. Yet its relevance is, is incredible. And we pray that by your spirit this evening, you would speak to us through this word. Us here at Bishop Hannington this Sunday evening, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, and change us and transform us that we might be your faithful children. Amen. So Mark 
chapter 11, and we're looking tonight at verses 1 to 26. And in this passage, we're entering the the last few days of the life on earth of Jesus Christ. And, And chapter 11 covers three of these days, the Sunday, the Monday, and the Tuesday. So in this short little, um, well, fairly long chapter, we're dealing Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, and that's how I'm going to divide the passage up. So first of all, verses 1 to 11 is, is Sunday. So it's Passover week. Jerusalem is thronging with people from all over the known world, and Jesus and his disciples are on their way, we read, to Jerusalem. And Jesus sends two of his disciples to get a young donkey. And he gives them clear instructions, and off they go. And and they find everything just as Jesus had said it would be. And when challenged, the owners of the donkey, the the disciples said, the Lord needs it, in verse 4. So had Jesus prearranged this with the owner of the donkey? Was Jesus able to, to look prophetically and to know what was going to happen and tell that to the disciples supernaturally organize it all I don't know (laughs) it could be either I like to think it's the second thing because he is the son of God and Jesus had to have a donkey the cult of a donkey it had to happen in this way because the prophets had foretold it in Zechariah 9.9 it says very clearly see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples we we read, or we heard read, brought the donkey to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it. That's a very expressive word, and they threw their cloaks over the donkey. And just as an aside, and it's a lovely aside, when Jesus says, cast your anxiety, or when Paul says, cast your anxiety upon the Lord, it's the same word, the casting of their cloaks on the donkey. That's what we are urged to do with our anxieties and our worries, to cast them upon the Lord. That's, that's a little aside. So the disciples brought the donkey to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and Jesus sat on it and rode it into the city, down the western slopes of Mount Olivet there. And many other people, they spread their cloaks on the roads and and they put palm branches there. And great crowds, we read, were in front of them and behind. And they were shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And in, in John's gospel, we read, they also shouted out, blessed is the king of Israel. No longer is Jesus hiding his majesty from the people, from the rulers, from the authorities, as he's done almost so far in the past three years, because now the time is right to fulfill the ancient prophecies. And and he openly, publicly acknowledges his kingship. He is the king. And this, this riled the religious rulers. John and Luke record that they rebuked Jesus. Look, what these people are saying, tell them not to say it. And Jesus responds to them, and you can almost see a smile on his face. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It has to be said, I am the king. I'm fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. I am the king coming into Jerusalem. 
Because this is the time for Jesus to fulfill his ultimate purpose. And his ultimate purpose is not to become the king of a, a physical, political nation of Israel that the people kind of expected, but he comes to fulfill his purpose, which is to die. To die on the cross as, a, as the sacrificial lamb of God. To deliver his people, a spiritual nation, not from the bondage of Rome, but from a far greater bondage, that of sin and that of Satan. That's why it's so applicable today. We too need to be delivered. And Jesus delivers people from the bondage of sin and Satan. And on top of that, he reconciles us to God. He makes us at one with God again. The gospel is, is a great gospel that goes down through the ages and across the nations. This is what Jesus came to do, and this is what he was doing now. He was coming to die. But in allowing this public adulation, Jesus was saying to the religious leaders, okay, come and get me, because that's what they were going to do. And, and he's saying to them, now is your hour. And, and these events, as we shall see later on, they triggered the plans of the leaders to, to, to plan and to work to put into, uh, into readiness Jesus' death. And we see that in verse 18. And, and the, the gospel writer Luke tells us that as he approached Jerusalem on this Sunday and then saw the city, he wept over it. He looked upon Jerusalem. And I think coming down the Mount of Olives, at that time Jerusalem was beautiful that the temple had been rebuilt and was still being finished off. It was huge. It was absolutely massive. And to the disciples and to all those people coming down, it would have been a glorious sight. And to them, here is the king of, of, of Israel coming into his temple. It would have been wonderful. But what did Jesus didn't join in with the adulation and the shout? He wept. He wept over the city of David, this magnificent and restored temple, he wept. Here in front of him was, was the, the very heart of Judaism. But Jesus, I'm sure, looks into the future and he sees 40 years in advance and he sees beyond the jubilant crowds and the optimism and the misplaced hope of the city's future that they had. And what does Jesus see? He sees the destruction of this glorious city before him. He's going to tell the disciples, not one stone is going to be left on another of that great temple that you see in front of you. Because in AD 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And at the Passover time, this time of the year, over a million of its inhabitants and the visitors there would be slaughtered by, the Rome, by Rome, young and old, rich and poor. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, says Luke's Gospel. No wonder Jesus wept. Then verse 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He went into the vast temple and he looked around, but since it was already late, we're told, he returned to Bethany with the 12. End of Sunday. Monday, verses 12 to 19. The next day, going back into the city of Jerusalem, as they were leaving the village of Bethany, they came across a fig tree. It was in leaf. And hungry as he was, Jesus went over to see if it had any fruit on it. No, just leaves, because we're told it wasn't the season for the figs. So Jesus said to the fruitless tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, verse 14. And the disciples heard him say it, 
We'll come back to that later on. This little fig tree is a puzzling thing, but there we can unravel it a little bit. So we come back to that as the passage comes back to that. We go on. On, re- on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and then he began to drive out the buyers and sellers. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Also, he wouldn't allow people to carry merchandise through the temple courts. This is the famous cleansing of the temple that, that we've learned about in Sunday school and so on. This is Jesus. He was, he was angry at what he sees when he enters Jerusalem on this Monday. The buying and selling of animals for sacrifice, the money changers, ripping people off, all being done in the temple courts. And we can imagine the noise, the hustle and the bustle, the marketplace-like atmosphere, the smells, hardly conducive to worship which is what God's temple was about. This is the place where God dwells. This is where you come to worship God. And Jesus taught, and he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is furious with what's going on. And and God's house, the temple, should have been a house of prayer. It's a place of sacred meeting between God and people. God and all the people, for all the nations to come. This is where God dwelt amongst the people. And this is where people could come, as they were coming now, to meet with the living God. And it was for all nations, but the Gentiles, the non-Jews, this, this where the marketplace was going on, was the only bit where they could go. And that's where all this marketplace activity was going on. They could hardly hear themselves think, let alone come and pray and worship. This was their area of God's temple, but they were being kept out of it by this activity. And the Passover feast was, was, was a time of, of sacred worship and remembrance and had become a vast commercial money-making racket. And the people were being robbed not only of their money, but also of the opportunity to meet with the living God and to worship him there. And this made Jesus angry, and rightly so. I wonder sometimes if we, in our well-meaning but unbiblical ways, don't rob people from meeting with God sometimes in our churches. We read in our little passage this morning in 1 Corinthians verse 11, Paul Paul was cross with the Corinthians. They were getting things wrong. And he said, your meetings do more harm than good. That's in verse 17 of chapter 11. Your meetings do more harm than good because we're here to meet with God, to worship him, to to experience him. And and, and sometimes we can be very well-meaning but very unbiblical. I want to make it a nice place, a friendly place, a comfortable place to come, but we kind of leave God out of it. Whereas in reality, we're here, aren't we? To meet with God, with the living God, and to allow him to meet with us. And sometimes we say, hold on a minute, Lord, just, we've just got this to do, we've just got that to do. Well, in a minute, in a minute, and by the time, it's, the time's gone. We haven't met with God. And, and sometimes we come in our hearts, and our desire isn't to meet with God, Our desire is to maybe feel good, have a good thing, or whatever it might be. Well-meaning and good, but we are here to meet with the living God and to allow the living God to meet with us. That's the purpose of us being here as a church. And there is a danger, isn't there, of church services just becoming a means of 
making us feel good. And it's, it is good. We've got a family. It's wonderful. But rather than, than meeting with God, we concentrate on meeting each other and doing things. I'm not saying we do that at VH. Maybe sometimes we do. But God sometimes, Jesus wants to meet with us too. And we need to concentrate on that. And it's very well meant. And there is a danger sometimes that we're robbing people of a genuine, life-changing meeting with God. We used to sing, didn't we? Here from the world I t- we turn. Jesus to seek. We used to come to church with that attitude in our hearts and minds. Here from the world we turn. Jesus to seek. And I thought at the beginning of the service how lovely it was. There we were as a congregation of people singing the praises of the living God from our hearts. What a wonderful thing. What a miracle in today's 21st century that we are doing that meaningfully. And I think God is in that. And it's so important that we, we keep that the, the, the sense of, of, of the sacred, of meeting with God. David the psalmist said, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And I think there should be a sense as we meet with God, there should be joy. There should be pleasures. It should be a really enjoyable experience for us to meet with God. Not a dull thing that we've got to kind of work our way through. A felt sense of, of relishing the presence of God in our midst. We should keep people, you know, almost, you, you can't come in, but it, they, they would want to come in because you're experiencing and knowing the love and the blessing and the presence of God. The sacred. It's a coming into the, the holy presence of a living God who is a consuming fire. That's what God is. And, and as we come into that and sense that awe, it kind of energizes us for Christian work for holy living, for fruit-bearing worship. So, so let's not be satisfied of just being in leaf, as it were, like the fig tree, but let us be ones that bear the fruit of bringing glory and praise to God. Point made, let's press on. Verse 18. The cleansing of the temple by the Lord understandably caught the attention of the religious leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and they were, we read in verse 18, they began to look for a way to kill him. Why? Because they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The, the older I get, the more I'm amazed I get at the teaching of Jesus. It was so radical and, and in a way so, so wonderful and beautiful. The people were amazed at the teaching of Jesus. And there should be something within us that senses that amazement. The gospel is an amazing thing that we are reconciled to God. We are genuinely, actually reconciled to the living God. He who once was our enemy, we were once under his wrath. We are now under his grace and his love, his smile, is ours in Christ, done for us by Christ's death. It's wonderful. And, and the, the, but the leaders were angry because the crowd were going over to Jesus. They sought for a way to kill him. Jesus was overturning their whole way of life, their, their, the way that they were doing things. Jesus was t- not only turning over the, the, the temple tables and, and benches, he was turning over their way of life. And he was. This was the end of Judaism. 
as they knew it. This was going to be the end of temple worship. It was never going to come back again after AD 70. And he was exposing that the last last few days of Jesus' ministry on earth, he absolutely gave it to the religious leaders. Up until this time, he's been very gracious, very merciful, very patient, but particularly in John's Gospel, you read of the last few days, Jesus opens up with all barrels onto them. He really does. And he warns them and threatens them. He exposes their outward lives, their their professed godliness, but in reality they were greedy and they were selfish. Their hearts were wicked and Jesus saw into their hearts. So no wonder they feared him. Then verse 19, when evening came, Jesus and the disciples went out of the city, probably back to the nearby village of Bethany. What a day. Monday had been. End of Monday. Tuesday. And Tuesday goes on from here, verse 20, through to the end of chapter 14. Tuesday is a long day in Mark's account. And it says in verse 20, In the morning, as they went along, returning to Jerusalem, they saw the fig tree. Here we come back to the fig tree. The leafy tree was now withered from the roots. It was dead. And and Peter remembered the curse upon it and said to the Lord, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Verse 21. So what's with the fig tree? This little, tiny little thing going on there. It's it's an important thing, isn't it? Jesus is saying something here. What what is he saying? What is he saying to the disciples? What is he saying to us? Honestly, there are books written about what this fig tree means. And you you name it, the interpretation is there on that one. But this, this is Phil's interpretation, okay? You can take it or not. I think that what we have here is an acted parable by the Lord Jesus. Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson, and a lesson that they will remember all their lives. What Jesus is saying is that the outward show, the leaves of Judaism, were there for all to see, but there was no fruit. And that's what was going on at the moment. There's plenty of leaves going on, but there was no fruit No fruit in the leaders, and fruit is important. That's what Jesus was looking for, and that's what Jesus wanted. He was hungry for the fruit, and it's the same with us in our lives. Jesus is hungry for the fruit in our lives. We can have loads of leaves, but we need fruit. And as Jesus, the scriptures teach that. Jesus says in Matthew, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me, that their worship of me is based on merely human rules they've been taught. And as the fig tree was cursed by the Lord, and it was, so these stubborn and unbelieving people and leaders and all who refused to believe in him would be cursed by God. Their leafy outward show would soon be withered. The old order of temple worship was being replaced by the new worshipping the Lord in spirit and in truth. We can keep our leafy show, can't we? We can look very leafy as Christians. And the Lord sees beyond the leaves. I'm glad he does. He sees us right into our hearts. And there must be fruit in our lives, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And such is the evidence of true faith. If you truly are a believer and the Holy Spirit lives within you, fruit will come. Fruit will come. It's just that's what happens. And it's the evidence of a true faith. It's it's the outworking of God's spirit. That's why we need to let God do his work amongst us. Then fruit will come. 
Every good tree bears good fruit, says the Lord, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. There's warnings galore in the scriptures about bearing fruit. And not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. But only he who does the will of my Father. So let's listen to the warning of the Lord in this passage and make certain that we know him. Because Jesus says to those people, I'll say to you on that day, I never knew you. It's all about knowing the Lord Jesus. That, that's the key, personally knowing him, knowing his forgiveness, knowing his love, knowing his life in us. For us to know him is life. And, and that life is eternal life. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. Eternal life starts when, we, when, when the Lord comes to dwell in our hearts by his spirit. That's when eternal life begins. And it, it goes on then forever. But it's eternal in its, in its depth and breadth and length and everything. So I've got to ask you tonight, young people, old people, everyone, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know him personally? Does he know you? Does he live in your heart by his spirit? And is he, by his spirit, bearing the fruit, the God-pleasing fruit of righteousness? Then the answer is either yes, he does, praise God. No, I don't think he does, or I'm not sure, really, to be honest. Then it's important that, that we are sure. It's not a, a wrong prayer to say, Lord, I'm not sure. Help me to be sure. Help me to really know that you dwell in my heart, that, that I do know you personally. There's an old Christmas carol that we'll probably sing this year. It's lovely. And it's this, the refrain of it is simple. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. And it is that simple. It's not complicated. The gospel, there is room in my heart, Lord Jesus. Oh, come to my heart, I pray for thee. There's room in my heart for thee. So come, Lord Jesus, into my heart. It's that simple, the gospel. And he will. He will answer that prayer. And there's more to learn from the fig tree. The answer to Peter's exclamation, Jesus goes on to teach about the power and the importance of prayer. We've got to just skip through that because I'm running out of time. But it's a lesson that Peter and the disciples and all believers need to learn. And the, learn, the, the lesson is a simple one. Mountains can be moved by faithful prayers. Our prayers reach out to the living God to whom nothing is impossible. It's not our prayers that move the mountains. It's God that moves the mountains. Our prayers reach out to him and he does the moving because he is the, the, the almighty God. We've been singing, haven't we? He, his almightiness. Prayers ask and seek and knock on the door of divine power and love. Three clear lessons here about prayer. One, nothing is impossible to God. That's where we start with. We come into God's presence with our prayers to a God to whom nothing is, is, is impossible. So that helps us to pray for big things. We need to have faith in the ability and power of God to do what he pro has promised to do. Mountains, there are plenty of mountains. I'm sure even in a congregation like this and those listening online, there are mountains ahead of me. They just seem immovable. What can I do? Isaiah says, you will thresh the mountains and crush them. You'll reduce them, the hills to chaff. How can that be done? How is it possible? Because the Lord says, I am with you. 
I will strengthen you, I will uphold you, I will help you, says the Lord. With that truth, God is my help, God is my strength. The mountains can be threshed and reduced to chaff. Just as a personal testimony, this, this last week we had a difficult situation in our family. Just uh, my daughter-in-law, was, we'd come across a mountain and she'd come round and we were talking about it and I've been preparing this sermon so let's pray. I believe in a God who can move mountains. Phil put his faith on the line there. We, we prayed. We prayed there and then that God would, would reduce this mountain. It seemed immovable and praise God that the next day the mountain was, was moving and it was like I was joyfully surprised but God does move mountains whatever they might be you can put your mountain to, to whatever it is that's the God that we serve and love and sometimes his answers are yes sometimes his answers are no sometimes his answers are wait a bit and I think that's the main one that seems to happen doesn't it because God wants us to learn patience in waiting for his answers to our prayers but that's, that's the way he works. So nothing is impossible to God. Trust in God to hear and answer your prayers. That's the teaching of this, isn't it? That's what the disciples needed to learn. Their future lives, Jesus is spending these last few days teaching the disciples, getting them ready for their lifetime of ministry in his name. They needed to learn to trust in the living God, to trust in Jesus. Trust in him to hear and answer your prayers. And finally, be forgiving. Be forgiving. Verse 25, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Mm. That's, that's not easy, is it? To forgive people at times. And I can hear in my head somebody saying, Phil, you've no idea of the harm that's been done to me, and you are asking me to forgive them? <laughs> that, that is an impossibility. Can I answer that as gently as I possibly can? One, it's not me that's asking you to forgive, it's the Lord Jesus. Two, nothing is impossible to God. Mountains can be thrown into the sea. Mountains, perhaps, of bitterness, Mountains of hurt, mountains of rock-solid grudges can be moved. But divine help is needed. Thirdly, how great are the sins that we have been forgiven? With, with that in mind, how can we not forgive others? When we think of how much God has forgiven us, there, there is no excuse at all. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We must forgive with the same measure that we've been forgiven. We're ending on a somber note there, but I hope that you can take away the rest of the teaching of this passage. We've covered three busy days in the final week of our Lord's life. And as he spoke to the disciples, getting them ready for their life of ministry, he speaks to us, getting us ready for our life of ministry. Who knows for your young people? What, what's ahead of you? Who knows for us older folks? We can do more in five minutes with God's Spirit than we can in a lifetime. If he comes upon us, Moses was how old? 80 when the Lord called him. So there's plenty of work. Some dear friends of mine, they've just gone out to Burma for a couple of weeks. They're in their 80s and they've been serving God out there. 
plenty of room for all of us. So as God spoke to his disciples, so he speaks to us. Let's learn the lessons they learned and heed the call that they were given. Let's pray. Lord, help us, we pray, by that spirit that we've been talking about, the Holy Spirit, to heed the call and to answer it. Show your power, show your grace, show your mercy in our midst by helping us to see mountains disappear. Help us to pray, to pray to you, the living God, we pray. Amen.